Well, good morning and Happy New Year to you. If you're wondering why I'm using this setup to preach, it's because Christmas Eve, I tried preaching from a chair for the first time, and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> and not for the obvious reason that it was a little more relaxing, I just felt more focused and free than I do when I'm standing behind a, a, a podium. Now, I don't know why, I just know that's how I feel. But I noticed as I was seated in a chair Christmas Eve holding my notes that the notebook shook a great deal because I have what's called a benign tremor. I don't have Parkinson's disease, but my hands shake uncontrollably at times, and I got to thinking, well, if I sit in a chair and the notebook's shaking, people are going to be praying for me rather than listening to what I have to say. <laughs> and they're going to be wondering, should we call 911 or not? So I thought, well, I'll try a table, and I like it even better. So who knows, maybe next week I'll be in a lazy boy recliner <laughs> with, with the vibrator going on. And if I need a quarter for it, I'm sure you'll be willing to help me. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a person with a divine assignment. And the assignment that God has given you is one that is unparalleled in its importance. But it's often unpopular in the court of public opinion. That shouldn't surprise us, shouldn't intimidate us, and it shouldn't deflate us. Because as followers of Christ, we are called to live out and proclaim spiritual truth in a world where people can't handle the truth. And one of the many reasons why they can't handle the truth is because they have invested heavily in spiritual lies, in spiritual counterfeits. And as human beings, we always zealously protect our investments. But it would be a mistake to think that our assignment from God is entirely for the benefit of other people. It isn't. It's for our benefit as well. Because all of us enter into God's kingdom with a bad, underproducing spiritual portfolio. All of us walk into God's kingdom having invested in things that are counterfeits of reality. And we aren't immediately or instantly convinced that we ought to allocate our resources elsewhere. All of that to say, Believers need the ever-expanding influence of the Holy Spirit equally as much as unbelievers. Unbelievers need the expanded influence of the Holy Spirit for their redemption, for their new birth. But Jesus' followers need it for our renewal and for our new lifestyle. And I'm convinced the quickest path to your personal renewal leads directly to your personal involvement in the redemption of those who don't know Christ. Because when we point others towards the heart of God, God has a way of pointing out the ungodly things in our hearts. Many times when you're witnessing to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, as you come up against their doubts and you come up against their fears and you come up against their pride, 
you suddenly hear echoes of your own doubts and your own fears and your own pride. And while you're seeking to witness to them, the Holy Spirit bears witness to you. That's why Jesus combined following him and fishing for men in the same short sentence. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And I like what the evangelist Vance Havner said many years ago. In light of Jesus' statement, if you ain't fishing, you ain't following. Fishing for others, following Jesus, they're inseparable. They're a package deal. And there are few narratives in Scripture that affirm and illustrate that fact like the New Testament book of Acts. Because it's more than the account of people transforming their world for God. Acts is the account of people being transformed by God as they transformed the world for God. Now this will be our third journey through the book of Acts. The first was my first year here 33 years ago. The last was in 2008. And I want to promise you that this will not be a lazy rehash of what I have taught previously. I'm not going to just go into the files, pull out something, blow the dust off us, and deliver it once again. I intend to craft all new teachings because I want to look at the book of Acts from a new perspective, from a different angle. Specifically, I'm going to translate it through the lenses of a statement that was made centuries earlier by King Solomon. Despite a life of unusual wisdom, unrivaled power, and unimaginable wealth and affluence, Solomon found himself grappling with unrelenting doubts. But by God's grace, he worked through those doubts and he came to some valuable conclusions, including the one we're going to use as the portal into our examination of Acts. It's found in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, and it simply says, God has also set eternity in the human heart. Eternity in the human heart. And Eternity in Our Hearts is going to be the title of our year-long study and the title of this inaugural teaching. And so I would invite you to join your hearts with me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, as in the year past, I will not be able to discharge my divine responsibility, my divine assignment, absent the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me that I might teach your truth. And Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on every one of us that we might receive it, grasp it as best we can, and apply it as best we can at this moment in our walk with you. As always, we pray these things in Jesus' name, for Jesus' honor, for Jesus' reputation, for Jesus' work in us, and for Jesus' work through us in a broken world. And we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together today, may the Lord be with you. I want to begin today with a quote from one of my favorite Christian writers, C.S. Lewis, and from his best-known classic, Mere Christianity. And I'm not offering it today as some airtight proof of God's existence for the skeptical. It is not that. I'm offering it 
as a reminder to the faithful, to the believing. And it'll be scrolled on the screen here behind me as I read it. Lewis said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. You could preach on that for a year. Lewis' observation was hardly new. He was echoing things God had said many, many centuries earlier. God has placed eternity in our hearts. We were created by the eternal God. We were created for the eternal God. And only the eternal can satisfy our souls. That's why Augustine famously suggested our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. But finding your heart's rest in God isn't always easy and it's never automatic. It requires constant discernment and continuing commitment. Why? Because the world offers us an endless series of substitutes for God. It offers us the temporal as a substitute for the eternal. And that's why this year, like every other year of your life, we must decide if we're going to pursue the eternal realities for which our hearts genuinely hunger or the temporary illusions that readily take their place. And all of us will do one or the other on a daily basis. You cannot opt out of that decision. And here's why. While we may misdirect our desire for eternity, we can never ignore it. Will you read that with me? While we may misdirect our desire for eternity, we can never ignore it. Any more than we can ignore the physical desires God has placed within our physical frame. Now consider the example of our desire for water. Our bodies require ample fluid intake, ample hydration in order to function in healthy fashion. And that's why God designed within us that sensation, that desire that we know as thirst. It's a strong desire. It's not going to go away. And it cannot be ignored. But it can be misapplied and misdirected. 
I say that because medical studies have shown that many people in our culture live out their life in various stages of dehydration. And they're not only dehydrated because they don't take in enough fluid, they're dehydrated because they seek fluid somewhere else. That is, when their body is thirsting, they have the sensation of hunger. Their body is craving fluid, they think their body is craving food. So they eat and consume food to satisfy what is actually thirst, unaware that what they're craving is the fluid, the moisture in their food. But it's a poor way to hydrate yourself. Because if you hydrate yourself by eating, here's what happens, you end up underhydrated and overweight and very unhealthy. And that means you've become the victim of a legitimate desire that was misdirected. Now, that same dynamic occurs all the time in the realm of spiritual things. People mistakenly interpret their God-given thirst for the eternal as a longing for things that are temporary and temporal. Then they misdirect their efforts at satisfying that longing. They substitute the temporal for the eternal. They end up undersatisfied and overstressed. Now, let me offer human sexuality as an example because it's one of the desires that Lewis mentioned. God has placed within each one of us a desire for intimacy of soul. It's the primary reason he made us sexual beings. Some would say, well, it's primarily for procreation. Really? How many times will a married couple be sexually intimate over the course of 30 or 40 years? The majority of those times are not for the sake of having another child. If they are, we have a counseling department. <laughs> and you need to avail yourself of that ministry. No, the majority of times that a couple has intercourse, it's not for the purpose of procreation. It's for the purpose of soul intimacy. You see, physical intercourse was intended to reinforce and enhance the spiritual intimacy, the intimacy of soul between a husband and a wife living in an exclusive, sacred covenant of companionship. We call it marriage. Furthermore, it was intended to symbolize the covenant relationship between Christ and his body, the church. That's why casual sex without commitment is so inappropriate, because how could that ever be a picture of the union between Christ and the church? Jesus doesn't make a one-night stand with his church. Jesus doesn't say, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and disappear. And good luck to you if you're pregnant. Jesus doesn't say, sorry about that, have an abortion. You see, when the desire for intimacy is misinterpreted and misdirected, then sex is reduced. It's reduced to a mere recreational activity involving consenting adults. And the focus is on technique 
rather than on intimacy. Read the cover of those magazines, those annoying magazines at the checkout in your local grocery store. How to have greater sex. And what's it about? Technique and positions has nothing to do with the soul. When that happens, sex becomes a quick fix that fixes nothing but breaks everything. Or worse, it becomes a sad, dehumanizing addiction. Enduring covenant intimacy gives way to momentary physical pleasure. And I want to remind you there is no condom for your soul. That's why that fleeting pleasure is diminished by what I like to call morning after spiritual dissonance. It just doesn't feel right. And spiritually transmitted dis-ease. That's why the so-called sexual revolution of the 60s was neither really sexual, and it was hardly a revolution. It was nothing more than a misdirected search for intimacy. That's all it was. A culture hungering for intimacy thought intercourse translates into intimacy, and they found out differently. And today, the grandchildren of that revolution feel betrayed sexually because they're discovering sex as recreation and porn as an addiction do not satisfy their innate hunger for intimacy. God has placed eternity in their hearts and the temporary detached from the eternal framework simply cannot and will not deliver the goods. See, the truth is, when we misdirect our God-given desires, we inherit deep dissatisfaction. A brief sojourn through our social media affirms that fact. Ours is a culture that loves pleasure more than it loves God. God wrote about that centuries ago. In our culture, the eternally enduring has given way to the momentarily distracting. Entertainment has replaced the eternal. The release of dopamine that causes addiction to a chemical as well as addiction to looking at your cell phone. The release of dopamine has replaced the delight of devotion to God. As a result, we're plagued by a stubborn dissatisfaction. And dissatisfaction, if it isn't addressed, eventually gives birth to anger. And have you noticed in our culture the frequency and intensity of irritation and complaint? It's epidemic. Rage is unleashed with the slightest provocation and without warning and without any apology. When I was a young person, we used to talk about beer muscles. Those of you my age know what beer muscles are. Guy gets a few drinks in him and all of a sudden he's challenging the world. Yeah. Well, today we have internet muscles. People who would never have the guts to say what they say to your face will get on the internet and say it full of rage. Whining has become a national obsession. Blaming others, a pernicious, debilitating habit. And here's why. Because no device in your hand, no partner between the sheets, no chemical in your body, no product in your garage, no title on your door, no production on the screen, 
can satisfy the eternity in your heart. You may forget that reality. You may stubbornly deny that reality. But here's what you can't do. You can't escape that reality any more than you can escape thirst or hunger. God has put it in your heart. But enough about misguided desires. We don't want to emphasize the negative. We need to know about the negative because we're all tempted by the negative. But our first concern as followers of Jesus is how do we properly handle this innate eternity in our hearts in a way that brings satisfaction. And toward that end, I'd like to suggest the first thing we need to do, we need to know what eternity in our hearts means. And again, I think Acts has a great deal to say to us about that. And based on the narrative of Acts, let me suggest a rather crude Yinzer definition. <laughs> eternity in our hearts means we want to know the eternal one and do eternally significant stuff. We want to know the eternal one and do eternally significant stuff. It means we hunger for the permanent. We want the enduring in our everyday. We want one loving relationship that will never be betrayed and never be ended by death or any other thing. The only relationship that fits that description is a relationship with the eternal God. And we want to invest our lives in things that are significant and sustainable, not things with an expiration date. We don't want our lives defined in terms that will lose all meaning in a century or 50 years or a thousand years. Eternity in our hearts means that we long innately to conform to creation more than our surrounding culture. We want to be about God's business. And once again, Acts is very helpful in that regard because it illustrates how people who understand their God-given longing for eternity align their passions, align their priorities, align their activities with that longing. To use a phrase from C.S. Lewis, Acts is the tale of people who pressed on to their true country and helped others do the same. And Acts is a reminder to us that expanded influence began unfolding long before we mentioned it here at ACAC. You see, expanded influence is the inevitable passion and response of those who have aligned their lives with the eternity in their hearts. Eternity in our hearts and expanded influence are inseparable. So it's not a slogan we thought of. It's a reality that shouts to us from every page of Scripture. Each week this year, we're going to consider how the eternity in their hearts shaped the people in that early church and how eternity in our hearts should shape the church today, how it should shape us. But I want to conclude today with just three general, broad-stroke observations from the book of Acts, and we'll refer to these repeatedly. Number one, the eternal significance we desire isn't found, isn't found when we seek it only for ourselves. It's found when we share it with others. Let me share something God showed me this week for the first time. 
He said, if you're struggling with change in your life, perhaps it's because you're only seeking change in your life. If you're struggling with change in your life, perhaps it's because you're only seeking change in your life. It's entirely self-absorbed, entirely self-focused. The men and women in Acts were transformed not by sitting in Jerusalem and saying, God, transform us, but by going out with God to change their world. And their own transformation was a rather serendipitous response to their engagement. So you see, missions and your involvement in missions and sharing the good news has a great deal to do with your own personal renewal. The second observation, the illusion of safety is the enemy of eternal significance. Because significance is usually found on the other side of some God-ordered risk. See, you're never going to be completely renewed without taking a risk. Now, I'm not talking about going out and doing something stupid just to show that you're a risk taker. No, that'll just show that you're acting badly. God-ordered risk. Have you noticed that there is not one single commandment in Scripture to play it safe? The 11th commandment is not, Thou shalt play it safe, saith the Lord. And you know why? Because playing it safe is just unbelief on the installment plan. Playing it safe is what people do when they've lost touch with the eternity in their hearts when they've lost sight of the magnitude of their God, when they've lost sight of the importance of their mission. There is no renewal without risk. I mean, one of the reasons why some people stubbornly resist coming to Jesus is because they're afraid if they try it, it won't work. I've heard that many times. They're afraid to risk what doesn't work for what God has assured us will work. They can't embrace that moment, that difficult moment when they have let go of something they've held on to all their life and God hasn't yet replaced it with the new thing, that moment of vulnerability, that moment of risk-taking. How much risk did David accept when he grabbed his sling and a few stones and went down into the valley against a man eight foot tall, fully armored. How much did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego risk when they said, we'll not bow our knees, throw us into your blast furnace. God is with us. How much risk did Paul embrace, did Peter embrace, when they went into hostile situations and declared the gospel of Christ? See, Acts has got to shout, if you want to be different, you've got to accept risk. And the third observation, momentary sacrifice lays the foundation for eternal significance. You want significance, you have to make a sacrifice. I say that because Acts isn't a record of people of unusual genius. It's a record of people like us, ordinary people, 
who made unusual sacrifices. Big difference. And they were motivated by the eternity in their hearts. They advance the eternal by surrendering the temporal. Surrendering their convenience, their financial resources, their safety, the list goes on and on and on. See, if you want to do the significance, you've got to make a sacrifice. But if you understand the eternal, the word sacrifice doesn't seem appropriate. I mean, when you really understand what God is going to do with what you place in his hand, you won't want to refer to it as sacrifice. Let me illustrate very quickly. Karen and I like to go out eating from now, uh, now and then. I'd, I'd go out all the time if I could afford it. And at a typical restaurant between the two of us, we might lay down 40, 50 bucks. We could go to Mickey D's and lay down $12, but that doesn't seem like a night out. We could go elsewhere and lay down $200, and that seems like suicide. So, so, so we go out and lay down 40, 50 bucks and have a nice evening together. But after that investment of $50, what do I have to show the next day? Hopefully not food poisoning. <laughs> what do I have to show a week later? A nice evening out with my, the love of my life, but nothing more. And I would say that to minimize that, but nothing more. Short-lived. But what if I invest $50 in a radio broadcast into a country close to the gospel? And a man working in the field hears the gospel, gives his life to Jesus, leads his wife and children to Jesus, and they lead their extended family to Jesus. And it starts a movement in their village to Jesus. And by the way, that kind of stuff happens in Alliance missions all the time. What is my investment going to be producing the next day? A hundred years later, a thousand years later, an eternity later, more than I can ever imagine for them and more than I can imagine for myself because I'll receive eternal reward for that. The greatest being that I contributed to somebody's eternal destiny. That's why I say the word sacrifice seems so unfitting. How is that a sacrifice? If I said, give me 50, I'll give you 100, would you call it a sacrifice? When God says, present yourself as a living sacrifice, what's he got to give you back? Your life! The one you hunger for that the world can never give you. Tell me again why we call that sacrifice. When we yield that which we can never keep, because there's no U-Hauls behind hearses, we yield what we can never keep to gain what we can never lose. That's not sacrifice, but because we don't have a better word, we'll leave the final point. Momentary sacrifice lays the foundation for eternal significance. As we study Acts, here are my three hopes, my three objectives. One, 
I want you to embrace God's vision for ACAC as God's vision for ACAC, not something the staff threw against the wall in the hopes that it would stick. Secondly, I want you as a congregation to be willing to take risky steps and make risky decisions and go where we've never gone before so that we might impact the world like we never have before. And third, I want you to individually be willing to make, quote, sacrificial, unquote, individual commitments so that we can turn this vision into a reality, not only for the sake of those who need redeemed, but for the sake of all of us who need renewed. And I'm going to pray for those things and encourage those things without apology. And here's why. Because the eternity in your heart guarantees you will never be satisfied with anything less. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have put eternity in our hearts. And we often don't know what to do with it. But you've told us what to do with it. You've told us how it's to be expressed. We don't need insight. We need obedience. We need faith. So, Father, I pray in this year of expanded influence, as we walk through the book that's the chronicle of those who had eternity in their hearts, I pray that you would enhance both our understanding and our application of eternity in our hearts. For the sake of your honor, for the sake of broken people, for the sake of a broken world, and for our own sakes as well. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.